we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and in each episode, here at the Cabin in the Woods, somewhere in Wild West Cork, I investigate a tale of the strange from history and critically look into the facts. Sometimes we cover hauntings, UFOs, or conspiracies, but as a zoologist and ecologist by trade and training, I have a special love in particular for stories about mystery animals, the realm of cryptozoology. Here at the cabin, surrounded by files, tapes, and books of lore, I investigate sightings of strange creatures using first-hand accounts whenever possible. As the old adage goes, I want to believe, but the evidence has to be good. This episode, however, is something a little different, and something very special. Just this once, we're proudly presenting a short audio drama about the birth of the Bigfoot phenomena in California in the 1950s, and the various eccentric characters who first went in search of this mythical beast. This episode, Wide Atlantic Weird presents Dawn of the Wild. Dawn of the Wild is an entirely original audio drama written by me, Kean Gill, and it is written as though it might be the first of a series. Written in the style of a pilot, if you will. I'm incredibly honoured to have the voice talents of the brilliant Joe Hart and Faye Sewell, both professional actors and hosts of the successful YouTube show The Ghost Trail, which I'll link to in the show notes, as well as Mr. Ali Keane from The Scuts, the hardest-working, Tory-bothering punk band in all of London. And I'll link to their work also, you should check them all out. As always, these folks were an absolute pleasure to work with, put in a tremendous job. And for the Americana feel... Dawn of the Wild features original bluegrass recordings from a thoroughly international bunch. Kylie Anderson on vocals and mandolin, Owen Schinkel on the dobro, Kevin and Geraldine Gill on banjo and guitar, and myself on the double bass. Regular listeners to the show know that I love tracing the beginnings of a legend. When Bigfoot first became big news in California in the 1950s, such a bizarre cast of characters went in search of him that, upon researching the show for a previous episode, I realised a drama would be a fun way to approach the story. Names and facts have been changed to fit the needs of the story. For the true details, check out our double episode, Bigfoot Before 1958. Bigfoot buffs will note the nods to real-time characters and situations in this drama. But for now, cast your mind back to a time when the newspaper headlines are alive with the story of a legend. Before the hoaxes, the fakes, and the disappointment, there was a time when the legend just might have been real. White Atlantic Weird presents Dawn of the Wild.
The mournful cry of a loon floats from the depths of a British Columbia forest. It is both sad and beautiful. Here, on the west coast of BC, the cry of the loon is the personification of the wilderness. It doesn't sound like the call of a rather average-looking duck, one that has no particular significance on my side of the pond where it spends the winter months. Back home, this bird is known as the northern diver, and it's a winter visitor, the same as many other birds, and there's nothing special about it. But out here, things are different. When the campfire licks at the darkness and the shadows dance below the tree line, the sound of the loon drifts from the deep forest, sounding like something huge and mournful and mysterious. And, for just a moment, it seems as though anything could be out there. There are two campsites within a short walk of the town of Hudson Springs on the eastern side of BC. In the town itself there's a cafe and a gas station and a couple of memorabilia shops, very little else. But, for one weekend at the end of summer, Hudson Springs comes alive. Visitors arrive from what seems like the entire Pacific Northwest and even further afield. I've come a rather long way, for example, as you can probably tell. I'm sitting round the fire with a young couple who have driven from South California and a bearded middle-aged man from Ohio. All of us have travelled here for the weekend event, a celebration of the legendary creature that put this remote part of BC on the map, the Bigfoot Blowout. It's a celebration of all things Bigfoot, for Hudson Springs is close to the rolling, forested hills where the myth of the American mystery ape first got started back in the 1920s. It's the second night of the event. Tomorrow, I'm expecting talks from Sasquatch experts, witness stories, a lot of beer, and food stores that sell burgers with goofy names. As it happens, I won't be disappointed. But, for now, we drink bottles of Sierra Nevada ale and discuss what we're most looking forward to. The smell of roasting meat mingles with the tang of pine pitch. Earlier in the day, I had sat on a lawn while a rising star in the Bigfoot research world gave his opinions on the state of the field. The evidence so far has been disappointing, he admitted, but that's because Bigfoot is a trans-dimensional creature, one that can appear and disappear at will. A space animal that doesn't leave bodies, bones or anything else that a close-minded scientist would require. I was rather shocked to see the audience nodding in agreement. Across the street, a hippie pastor with a spray-painted mobile church preached to his forest ministry about the worship of Sasquatch as an ethereal being of the woods. Is this what has become of the study of mystery animals? Have we drifted so far from a scientific search for a physical, real-world animal? I asked the other guests who share the campfire with me, but the chat dries up when a tall figure comes out of the tree line from the direction of the tents and trailers and into the light of the fire. It isn't Bigfoot. It's an old gentleman, perhaps in his 90s, bent but not frail. He walks to the empty seat between me and the young couple, sits down. Crickets chirp as we examine this newcomer. He's a gentleman, through and through, the kind they don't make anymore. A lined, handsome face, khaki shirt, green vest bulging with pockets, and a wide-brimmed hat like an old-time explorer. Good evening, he says, with an Oxford-educated accent that catches us all by surprise. Am I to take it that you're all here for the festival? All about the ape, of course. He smiles and chuckles to himself, and fumbles inside one of his pockets for a cigar. 
We tell him that we have, and he grumbles good-naturedly about how... Damn shame they had to go and call the thing Bigfoot Blowout, of course. Sasquatch is the more respectful name. At this, he stares into the darkness, as though addressing the beast itself. Wind whistles through the pines. It's true. Just a few valleys over, the young missionary and anthropologist J.W. Burns first recorded tales of a wild, forest-dwelling man from the Chahalis Indians back in the 1920s. Sasquatch was his attempt to anglicise the name they used for the animal. Bigfoot came later. We all had disagreements about the name. The old man says, now patting his jacket down, looking for a lighter. Something falls from a pocket, rolls on the ground, glinting in the firelight. The young woman from California picks it up, is about to hand it back when she gasps. The Riggs Expedition 1960, she reads from the lighter. You must be... Suddenly, we all know who this man is, and I realise why there's a hint of Irish beneath the clipped British accent. You're Selwyn Ahern, we breathe together. I can hardly believe it. The man was one of the first to investigate the legend of Bigfoot seriously, scientifically. Before the field became crowded with fakes and hoaxes, before the years without evidence had made those desperate to believe turn to the metaphysical, the supernatural cop-out explanations. Before Bigfoot had to be an invisible, multi-dimensional being. Back when it seemed just possible that he could be a flesh-and-blood critter. Back when it seemed just possible that someone could catch the beast. Selwyn Ahern was a pioneer, one of the three who first went out into these woods in search of a legend. The old man says nothing, his eyes fixed on the lighter. A long moment passes. Would you like to hear about how it was? he says. The stars above the tree line wink in the fire smoke. The crickets buzz. Sikkim, India, September 1958. Someone get me a hern, the white administrator yells. Papers fall from his desk as he waves his hands like a windmill. Above his head, an electric fan fights valiantly against the humidity. It's the beginning of the dry season down in the valleys, but even up here in the foothills, the heat is becoming intolerable. Sweat stains his khaki shirt. Outside his window, snowy peaks reach up into a perfect blue sky. He yells into a phone. I've got two angry Americans and a German here. They've been told they can hunt tiger, and they've been waiting for three days! The German? No, he's not so angry. I don't care. Close isn't close enough. He slams the phone, just as a young Irishman, tall and broad, with a dashing moustache, enters the office. Two Sherpas follow behind him, carrying a large wooden crate. I say, Fred, don't you know I haven't had the best of luck with Germans? They shot me down over Cairo during the African offensive in the war. So I think they can wait a couple of days to go on a shooting expedition, hmm? Don't you think? The younger man pulls a fragment of animal skin from his shoulder and drops it onto the desk. More paperwork goes flying. The hairy artefact lies before the official, stinking in the tiny room. What do you call this? It hasn't got a name yet. I tracked it in the Nebum Valley. I let the animal go, but collected only this souvenir. It's an undescribed kind of antelope. I propose calling it Nebula Saherni, but who's to say whether the scientific wallers will agree to that? 
children, pack this up and see if you can have it sent to the British Museum. When you're not out looking for animals that don't exist, you're out lousing with rigs in every club and camp man do. Now you finally find something worthwhile and you don't even shoot it. Your contract with the company is up. This is your last trip. You do me a disservice, sir. Firstly, Riggs is bankrolling my little adventures into the hills around here. And secondly, we'd never dream of frequenting the stuffy colonial clubs you visit. All the funds to be had in the native quarter, don't you think? Why didn't you bring a body of hand? Suppose the one I shot was the last one there is. The official remains stony-faced. The hunter turns and grabs his wide-brimmed hatch from a hook on the wall. Tell the Americans to be ready to leave in thirty. I need some sleep. Ahern, before you go, there's been some posts from America. Looks like Riggs writing. He passes the younger man a white envelope. Hmm, he hasn't been back long, has he? New York, it says. Well... It is several hours and 40 miles up into the Himalayas that Selwyn Ahern finally gets a chance to read Tom Riggs's letter. The German had proved to be more friendly than the Americans, and the day's hunting had been fruitful. After setting up the tents, Ahern gives the tourists a chance to relax and drink whiskey while he lights his own smaller fire. Now he pulls the crumpled letter from his jacket. Selwyn. I've sponsored three of your expeditions into the mountains looking for mystery animals. This is to be the last one, at least the last one to take place in the roof of the world. For all the talk of the abominable snowman and for all the money I've spent, what do we have to show for it? Some blurry photographs of footprints that the experts say are nothing more than those of a bear. We have nothing even to match the shifting photograph of 1951. Ahern fingers the inner pocket of his jacket. His hand rests on something cylindrical, cigar-sized. Riggs doesn't yet know about the finger, he thinks. That old llama made him pay a stiff price for it, but the moment he saw that mummified hand in the lamasery, Ahern knew he had to have it. Surely the scientists in England would prove it to be the first real evidence of the Yeti. I have a new proposition for you. A most extraordinary newspaper story has come out from a little town in the forested wilderness of North California town called Ash Creek. Selwyn, if you come out here and meet me right away, I think we've a better chance of capturing a real monster right here in America than you'll ever have out in Asia. This is going to be big, and I want a Riggs expedition to be right on top and from the beginning. I have a connection in Delhi that will get you out of there lickety-split. Instructions below. Looking forward to seeing you soon. More adventures await. Your friend, Tom Riggs. A grey newspaper clipping drifts from the folds of the letter. Ahern lifts it and scrutinises the title in the poor light. Monstrous footprints found outside California logging town, flares the headline. Mythical Bigfoot monster may be real. The article is credited to someone called Jay Brown. You've got to be joking, says Ahern to nobody in particular. Monsters? In America? Ash Creek, Northern California, September 1958. 
Jean Brown ties her hair back and pushes her sleeves up. Her nose wrinkles. She stares at the footprint. That's it. That's what we've come out here to see. She's beaming. Cleve Grounds is still trying to guess her accent. California? He hasn't asked her yet. No way she's a local anyway. She's surely come a long way to report on this. He adjusts his glasses, loosens his tie. He's out of his depth here in the woods. Behind them, lumbermen move about the site. They've posted a wanted poster to a pine tree. It's a picture of a hodag, a mythical creature. A joke, part of the backwards culture these men cultivate in these remote parts. Crenshaw, the man who first found the footprints, is telling them his story. Brown has heard the story before, but she can't keep the smile off her face. Well, I came out of my trailer here and these gigantic prints were all over the place, right outside. I'll tell you, they go up a ways into the forest too, up terrain no hoaxer could ever access. I couldn't even follow them till the end. Brown squints at the logging man. Brown didn't get time to follow the tracks the last time she was here, investigating for the newspaper article. Brown and Grounds's heads turn up to the forested slopes that rise above the tiny logging camp. They feel suddenly swallowed up by the wilderness, Brown thinking about the miles of trackless forest they passed to get here. Herman County, Northern California, a magnificently pristine region, slashed through by the raging Kermuth River and its tributaries. Mountains frown from all sides, a maze of summits and ravines. Pines tower, spruce and cedar fill the air with musk and the smell of resin. Brown knows that the ground cover of the thickets she's squinting at is so dense they could be 50 feet apart in there and be invisible to one another. Thousands of miles of wilderness, so rugged it has only been surveyed by the air. This push by the logging company is the first time man has intruded here. Deer and elk move swiftly through these forests, says Grounds. Maybe the creature could too, if it exists. He lets the sentence hang. Primates, great apes are his area of expertise, and that's how he envisions this monster. It would have to be something close to human, he says. Yet the size and the toe placement marks it out as some kind of great ape. If we take into account the stories that came out of British Columbia back in the 1920s, and yet I still find this preposterous. If there's one place on Earth such a thing could exist, it's here, says Brown. A chill runs down her back. She's staring at the print. Incredibly, it's a barefoot, almost human-like, but it's 18 inches long, even longer than the one she saw here a few weeks ago. No bear or any other forest creature made this. Grounds, the academic, is on his knees with a measuring tape. From his bag, he pulls a container of quick-drying plaster and fills the depression. The ground is dry. The animal that left these prints was heavy. He lights a cigarette as he waits for the plaster to dry. He's a professor at Northwest, physical anthropologist, not a field researcher. Sometimes when a bear puts its hind foot into a forefoot print, it can change the shape. It makes it look like a human print. I think that's probably what we're dealing with here. Afraid that's not gonna cut it, Professor. Brown smiles. She eyes the steep slope. Grounds allows his eyes to roll up. His face blanches.
They've been climbing for two hours. Grounds' shirt is damp with sweat. He doesn't get out of his lab much. The prints, some clear, some indistinct, march onward through brush and thick overgrowth. If this is a hoax, someone really went to town on it. There are areas where they have to skip around the brush rather than follow the prints through it. The thought of walking this track while wearing clunky, oversized fake monster feet makes Browns' head swim. And who faked it anyway? Crenshaw? Logging camp magnet? Church-going man? Pillar of the community? Though this isn't the first case of strange footprints showing up at a Crenshaw logging site. Jean Brown, at home in Modesto. A journalism degree securely behind her, excited to make her mark as a scientist, but unsure where to start. Her mother nagging cleaning dishes. The radio blares, interrupting the Ron Everest show. Monster tracks found at logging camp. Signs of a beast that hides from man. Interview with representative from the Crenshaw Logging Company, live from Bluff Falls, here in the heart of beautiful and mysterious Northern California. Monsters? Here in California? Her eyes fall on the rows of identical suburban houses outside her kitchen window. Monsters? In 1958? In the 20th century? The idea that in this day and age something huge and primal and unknown could still be out there hits her like a locomotive. The fact that a primeval wilderness that could hold such a beast is located upstate is almost too much for her. And yet, didn't she know already? Her eye is drawn to the poster on the wall behind her. A giant, man-like footprint, one monstrous, misshapen toe larger than the others, neatly impressed into crisp snow. A pickaxe lies beside it for scale. The 1951 Shipton photograph, the image that gave shape to the myth of the abominable snowman. Was there now evidence of a kind of American abominable snowman? She has to sit down. The radio station is local, a podunk network. Someone more qualified should go there and report on this sighting. Bring it to the world. Her mother fetches her a cup of bad instant coffee. Coffee. Cleve Grounds is daydreaming about iced coffee. Mini golf balls of sweat roll down his forehead. His armpits are black. His stuffy office shirt sleeves are rolled up to his elbows. His backpack, containing various tools for measuring and collecting data, is stuck fast to his back. The pair come out into a clearing. The breeze is intoxicating after the clammy heat of the forest. They're up high. All around them, green slopes plunge hundreds of feet, a sea of pines swaying gently. As they plunge back into the black forest of the Kermuth wilderness, Grounds' mind drifts back to the last cup of coffee he had. Good coffee. Camp Coffee is the only place to get a good cup of java in the tiny town of Ash Creek. The logging boom in this remote part of the state is probably at its height, New temporary housing has sprung up around the one downtown Main Street and burly outdoorsmen patrol the sidewalks in plaid and hobnail boots. Cleve Grounds looks distinctly out of place as he shuffles into Camp Coffee, a thin, tweedy individual, thick glasses and a pile of papers under his arm. A bell rings as the door opens and a young, blonde-haired woman looks up from one of the booths. Dr Grounds, I'm Jean Brown. 
He sits opposite her. You're here investigating the same thing I am. Before her is a copy of the Kermuth Inquirer, its headline blaring about the latest mystery footprints. They're calling him Bigfoot, she says. Isn't that silly? But this is a brand new phenomenon and we're on the front lines. This isn't my first rodeo. Grounds fumbles with his papers when the waitress arrives. Brown orders coffee for them both. On the wall behind them, some enterprising local artist has recently begun a Bigfoot mural. I've followed quite a few tales like this. Back in 33 as a young man, I visited Scotland. They had a monster there too. It turned out to be a local with the hippopotamus foot stolen from a museum, making prints all over the highlands. You can guess what my colleagues thought of me after that. But this time... Brown is eager. There's background. Lore. Indian legends. Perhaps. But no, I can't consider those. They aren't science, and we don't know that they're referring to the same creature. A Sasquatch that shows up in legend doesn't sound like a real flesh-and-blood creature, more like a supernatural being. One that has feet that face backwards to fool us, that can mimic the sound of any animal in the woods, and can even speak human languages. That behaves more like an allegorical, folkloric being. That doesn't sound like a real creature at all. Not like these recent sightings. There are footprints. We're dealing with a real animal here, Doctor. I can't allow myself to hope that just might be the case, says Grounds. And anyway, this fellow Crenshaw, last month there were footprints found at one of his logging operations in a town called Bluff Falls. Now there are more here at Ash Creek, another Crenshaw camp. This guy is up to something. Then why are you here? He pulls a slim, portable tape recorder from his satchel, the kind journalists use. This recording is known as the Kermuth Scream. Someone sent a copy to my office. My funding runs out at the end of the semester, so if I don't come up with something worth studying, my career is finished. So I came down here from Seattle. He pushes a button. The cafe is filled with forest sounds. Brown holds her breath, unconsciously identifying sounds. Crickets, grey-headed chickadees, wind rustling through pine trees. A man speaks. He sounds native. He gives his name, a location, a date. He states that it's late at night. Then an animal sound cuts through these other noises. Brown shivers. The sound is a kind of demented laugh, a deep, throaty machine gun bark that slowly rises to a high crescendo. There is silence. Then it comes again. And again, she listens closely. It isn't a coyote, or a wolf, or a cougar, despite the many strange sounds these animals are known to make. Other patrons turn their heads as this cry of the deep wilderness fills the cafe. Grounds kills the tape. And that's why we're here. Grounds is tying a strange contraption to a tree trunk as the sun goes down. Shadows fill the forest. Buttery, orange light drops among the conifers. It will be dark soon. Brown finishes assembling the tents. Grounds has no experience with camping and approaches the academic. The device, one of his own making, is a kind of automatic camera. It's large, clunky. He says that it will flash and take a photograph if it detects movement, if something moves past it. That way, they can be assured of hard evidence if the creature is in the vicinity. Darkness falls. Cicadas whir and crickets chirp. 
the world shrinks into the orange light of the campfire. Brown cooks sausages and toast spuns. Grounds pokes the fire with a twig. Were we not in such a place as this, he says, I couldn't bring myself to believe in the existence of such a creature. From what I've heard, there's barely an inch of forest anywhere in this country that hasn't been turned over by hunters or forestry workers at one point or another, and we've never seen any part of a body. There'd have to be entire communities of these things out here, but they never leave a trace. He sighs. Perhaps this trip is a waste of time. I've seen one. Excuse me? The Sasquatch. I've seen one. As a child. Up here in Northern California. My mother and I were camping in the Evergreen National Forest. Something woke me during the night. It was a shuffling outside the tent. Something huge. I stuck my head outside and... Something clicks and whirs. There is a burst of light in the darkness. The camera! Grounds is up and away before she can say anything. His eyes blurry from the flash, he bounds through the darkness, stumbling over roots, heading vaguely in the direction where he thinks the camera is. But it's difficult to be sure. He fumbles, feeling for it on the bark around him, then remembers that he has a flashlight. But what if the beast is here? Does he want to see it? Its monstrous face, neither man nor animal, closer than comfort would allow, lit by the electric glow of the torch? What if it is drawn to the light? Does he want it to know where he is? Brown appears from the gloom. There it is, she says, pointing to a tree. Brown sees the camera. He toys with the casing, releasing a brown roll of film. He whispers. We won't know what set this off until we can get this developed in town. Brown screams, points to the ground. It's a print. Grounds' jaw drops as his trained eye begins to notice details. Differences from the prints they've been following all day. It's an oversized human-shaped print, like the others, but... He drops to his knees. The outline is different, curving over the shape of the foot, the way you'd expect mud to do as a living, muscular foot lifted itself up. And the outline itself, the foot is misshapen, crooked in the mid-tarsal region. There's a ridge there, the kind that apes have, the kind that allows their foot to bend as it lifts. That's the left foot. In the darkness, he scans the forest floor. And there's the right foot. It's normal. Brown. He breathes. It's crippled. Broken. He can't believe it. Something about this little detail has transfixed him. It's the kind of thing he's seen many times before, on living and dead ape specimens. The kind of thing that ordinarily occurs to living creatures over the course of a rough and tumble life in the wild. But it's the kind of detail that would not occur to anyone outside of a very specific group of scientists. It's real, he says. Brown raises an eyebrow. Grounds pulls a camera from his pocket and snaps a shot of the print. The flash blinds them, the sound echoing through the trees. Something responds to the sound. A bellow comes from the darkness. Brown's blood turns to ice. It's the sound from the tape. Only now, it's right in front of them. Something huge. They turn and run, stones beneath their feet. Roots grab at their ankles. In the darkness, they plunge down the slope.
Ash Creek Town Hall, October 1958. Cleve Grounds adjusts his tie in the mirror. The wound on his face, a couple of weeks old, is finally starting to heal. Taking a fall on a mountain slope, in the darkness, can create a nasty bruise. As the sound of the crowd outside the small dressing room rises, Grounds looks over his equipment, tools and evidence one last time. The interview transcripts from the witnesses at the logging camp, the photos that Crenshaw has lent him, the cast he himself made from the prints at the camp, a full 18 inches by 8, and the photograph he took of the print that he now refers to as the broken foot. This town hall meeting is only going to be the beginning. Finally, Grounds has found a subject to rescue his academic career. And finally, America is going to have its own monster, one introduced to the world not by credulous yokels or canny newspapermen, but by a goddamn academic. His wife blows him a kiss from the doorway, wishes him good luck. She's come all the way down from Seattle for this. She's proud of him. Someone pushes past her. Cleve, we have to talk. It's Brown. Jane, where have you been? I've been preparing this talk for weeks. I'm about to go on stage. The mayor is introducing me right now. You can't go on. It's Crenshaw. Crenshaw? From the logging camp? He faked the prince. He's got a pair of giant stompers and he walked all around the camp and up the mountain wearing them. He's showing everyone in town. Can't be. Are the prints the same? Brown pulls some photographs from her bag. They compare new photographs to those developed last week at the camp. Grounds' face falls. You can't go on, Cleve. You'll be humiliated. You won't be seen as some pioneer of the unknown. You'll be a sad scientist who's been fooled by a local prankster. Grounds' mouth tightens, a grim line. There is a long moment of silence. And, in that moment, Cleve Grounds becomes a believer. The broken foot. Cleve, no. There's no way that Clown Crenshaw got up that high wearing those things. There's no way he had the anatomical knowledge to make that print. Cleve. We heard it. We both heard it. We don't know what we heard. We were halfway up a mountain. It was dark. We were spooked. Cleve Grounds stares at Brown for another moment. Then he walks on stage and tells the good people of Ash Creek, California, that a nine-foot-tall relic hominid is living in the forests of the Pacific Northwest. He produces his various articles of evidence. The press react with glee. They ask a lot of questions. A Swedish immigrant smoking a long pipe seems especially interested. And a lot of locals, hunters and fishermen, seem very keen to get up into the mountains to see for themselves. Grounds knows that this is the beginning of a sensation. Jean Brown sits at the back and makes notes for her newspaper. At the end of the talk, a slick-looking businessman with greased hair and a grey suit says he'll fund an expedition to look for the creature. His name is Tom Riggs. He wants both Grounds and Brown on board. They're the only experts in a brand new field after all. He has new evidence that they won't believe and knows exactly where they need to start looking. Grounds is excited. He immediately begins telling Tom Riggs what kind of equipment he's going to need for the expedition. Well, that's well says Riggs. But it's going to depend on what my expedition leader thinks. Expedition leader? Naturally, Grounds expected that he would be in charge. A man makes his way through the crowd to where the members of the Pacific Northwest Expedition are talking. He's wearing a wide-brimmed safari hat, 
khaki vest, and a brown shirt. In his pocket, his hand toys with a mummified finger, said to be that of an Asian monster. He knows these beasts are real. It's Selwyn Ahern, just back from the Himalayas. Hello, old boys, he says, tweaking his safari hat. Are you ready to make history with me? The loon has long since ceased its calling, and the British Columbia night has settled into a quiet solitude. The fire dies, the monster-hunting tourists have returned to their tents for the night. As the old man finishes this first chapter of his story, I notice his eyes dart to the trees that brood beyond the light of the camp. He stands stiffly and makes his excuses. He has more to tell, I know, but that will have to wait for another night. I stay up just a little longer, hoping to catch a glimpse of something, or hear something, perhaps, something that can't be explained. Nothing comes. been listening to dawn of the wild presented by wide atlantic weird key in here i hope you enjoyed that just letting you know that if this is your first episode of wide atlantic weird and i like to assume that every episode is somebody's first episode yeah just letting you know this is not typical 
this is just a strange new thing we decided to try. We had fun with it. We hope you did. It was a lot of work. And I, I just have massive, massive thanks to all the great, talented people who helped out. Thanks to Joe, Faye, Ali, Kylie, Owen, Kevin, Geraldine, and uh, the man known only as Fionn McSchool, who came in at the last moment to provide a few extra unexpected voices. So huge thanks to everybody who did an incredible job, worked incredibly hard, uh, dealt with myself uh, asking for retakes and reshoots and all sorts of crazy stuff so yeah massive thanks to everybody uh, yeah if this is your first episode normally what we do is we take a look at supposed real life uh, strange stories um, a lot of cryptozoology some hauntings bits and pieces like that i try to check out the old um, original sources as much as i can i try and take a critical look at things but you know just this one time we tried something a little bit different I want to make a, a few things clear here. I, with this story, I, it is based on a true story, but I've massively condensed what actually happened. There's a lot of things here that did happen, sort of, like the way we portrayed them in the show, but uh, most of them did happen over many, many years. So I'll just uh, point out a few things. So the character of Selwyn Ahern, if, you know you're, if you're a Bigfoot buff, if you know your stuff, is clearly supposed to be Peter Byrne. He's one of the, what, what, what fans call the, the four horsemen of Sasquatchery. There were four characters who were extremely influential in the early days of, of this idea and he pretty much is probably the closest to his real life character he really was um, an Irish guy who went off to uh, fight in the second world war for the British army and developed a sort of a, a sort of pseudo British accent and he then did live the life of an adventurer he was a he was a big game hunter in in the Himalayas he then was um, recruited by an American oil millionaire with the tremendous name of Tom Slick in the episode we call him uh, Tom Riggs, Oil Slick, Oil Rig, something like that, I guess. And um, yeah, pretty much as, as happened. He also did actually smuggle a, a supposed mummified Yeti hand out of Tibet by giving it to the actor James Stewart in, in India to smuggle it out. So that all is based on a real thing. Um, so his accent is real, his background is real. Uh, it was a little bit later, it was more like 1960 that he was called back to America to go on this, uh, to lead this expedition into the Pacific Northwest. Cleve Grounds obviously is supposed to be Grover Krantz, who was like the scientific side of things. So he was an actual academic and he suffered tremendously for his interest in the in the Bigfoot phenomena. My the, the take in this episode of a guy who is um, sort of who, who desperately wants to believe and is kind of covering it with a veneer of scientific respectability is my own take on the situation. I think people who know his story might agree, but a, a tremendously interesting guy. Uh, definitely worth watching interviews with both of these guys actually Peter Byrne and um, Grover Krantz they are some of the most interesting people in the history of sort of Sasquatch study Grover Krantz came along a little bit later in reality he was kind of converted to the cause in 1969 uh, in a place called Bosberg in Washington State where he found a set of prints that had the what he called the cripple foot which I've sort of referenced in the episode uh, that was what made him think that this was probably a real thing it turns out to have been the work of a fellow called Marx, who probably was a hoaxer. He was he was linked to some known faked videos and things like that. Well, unfortunately, Grover Krantz chose this particular case to sort of, you know, change his mind on it and uh, basically spent the rest of his career going pro Bigfoot. Very interesting guy. He made some very interesting points and really his career really did suffer for it. But um, one of my favorite people involved in the study of this. Gene Brown is a kind of a composite character of perhaps the other two of the four horsemen she's a little bit of john green who was a canadian journalist and she's a little bit of renata hinden who was a, 
a European immigrant who was involved. Neither of these characters really are as interesting to me as um, Peter Byrne and Grover Krantz. So I combined them into one and I made it uh, I made it a woman as well, because why not? There were some women involved in in the research in the early days. I'm thinking particularly of Marion Place, who wrote On the Track of Bigfoot, which was quite influential for a lot of people growing up in the 70s, especially. And she covers all of this early material uh, involving the, the early sightings of the footprints back in the 1950s. Just to mention about Renata Hinden, I'm definitely giving him short shrift in this. A lot of people do like him and think he's interesting. Um, he is the, 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 the foreign journalist who shows up at the end with the pipe. And um, very odd guy. He, as far as I can tell, he's kind of best remembered for being cranky and awkward and stubborn and falling out with everybody. Rather than I find like that seems to be what he's more known for and remembered than his ideas. He did a lot of popularizing of the idea. He was not always the most skeptical, though he he didn't fall afoul of the Marx footprints of 1969. But anyway, I I felt the need to uh, stick those characters into one just for the sake of making the story a little bit simpler. Uh, the whole story with the 1958 footprints that kind of kicks off the legend. I've changed the place names. It really happened at Willow Creek, of course in California, but basically happened as you heard in the episode. Um, there were, there has been back and forth over the years as to whether they were faked. The guy generally regarded as being responsible is the Crenshaw character who was in reality Ray Wallace, who was a very strange guy who got even stranger in later life. He shows up quite a bit in Robert Pyle's book, Where Bigfoot Walks, which is great. But it just shows quite how off the off the rails he really was. He claimed his family claimed after his death that he had made fake feet and were stomping with them all over California. Um, a lot of the details don't actually match with the footprints that were found at the time. He was definitely faking prints, but um, the details are very murky and a lot of weird things were said both during his life and after his life by him. So there's a there's a lot of haze there, making it difficult to to really say what exactly was going on. So hopefully you enjoyed that. If you liked it or you want to reach out to us, please do get in touch with us on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, or get in touch with us on Instagram, where we are White Atlantic Weird Podcast. We have lots of episodes in the back catalog. Please do check them out. If you have any weird stories yourself or have ideas for episodes, please do send them our way. Uh, we want to believe, but the evidence has to be good. So stay safe and thanks for listening.